Hey, what's up, guys? This is Ari in the Air. Thanks for being here. Today, I'm back in my closet. This is where I record my podcasts. It's got great home audio in here. I just wanted to tell you a little story about who I am, essentially. So, recently I've made a connection with a new brand. They're called Revo. They make really nice sunglasses. And as I packed up to go on this two-night camping adventure in southeastern Oregon with my best friend Chris Hoyt, who is my paraglide partner. We've been flying in a dozen countries, five continents. We've flown all over the world together. We've made films together for Keen and for Marmot. We've taken a ton of awesome photos together. And... Chris lives in Maui, but he was over here, had his cool Volkswagen van again. Him and his girlfriend had been doing a long road trip. The road trip was almost over, and my girlfriend and I were going out to meet them. As we pack up, the mailman walks up to me and says, here you go, hands me a package. It's from Revo. I rip it open as fast as I can. Three pairs of really kick-ass sunglasses are inside. I think to myself, oh my God, this is perfect. I'm I have a call on Monday with the lady at Revo, who's really nice, who sent me the sunglasses. And this weekend we'll go out and we'll get some incredible content together of paragliding and camping. And we had, I had reserved this cabin on top of a mountain. It was a fire lookout. It was going to be so sweet. So we head out on the adventure. I meet up with Chris at Abert Rim. It's in southeastern Oregon. It's this huge, huge rim that runs for miles north-south. And just to the west side of it is a beautiful lake that is just perfectly placid. It's like a mirror. Chris and I hug and reunite, and we start hiking up the hill. We get to the top of the hill, and the wind is working, and I've got these new sunglasses on. I said, hey, like we'll take some photos with the sunglasses when we land, and yada yada, and we take off, and basically the first thing that happens is Chris crashes into the mountain. I watched him crash, and I immediately, my mind immediately went to doom and the worst possible scenario that could happen. What, what is he? Is he dead? Is his leg broken? Is he knocked out? Can he breathe? What's going on? So I basically get down to him as quickly as I can. Earlier this summer, I dealt with a fatality here at our local paragliding site outside of Bend. And so my mind instantly went to how bad is this situation. And so I got down as quickly as I could, tried to remain safe with all of my rush and all of my emotions and my thoughts that were coursing through me so quickly and viscerally. And I get down and I ball up my glider and I run over to Chris and Chris looks at me and he says, Ari, I'm okay. I thought to myself, no, 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 there's no, there's no way you're okay. I'm glad you're awake, but there's no way you're okay. I just watched you crash face first into the side of a rocky mountain. There's no way you're okay. So I got out of my kit and I kind of looked him over and I was expecting to find a broken leg, a broken arm, a something. He says, no, Ari, I think I'm okay. I think I, I hurt my ankle. My other ankle's kind of sore. My knees got a little scrapes on them, and I think I may have broken my wrist, but I think I just escaped alive from uh, what could have been a fatal paragliding accident. At this point, I was amazed, glad he was okay and awake to talk to me there. 
And then I basically am faced with myriad decisions of how do we get him down? What should I do? How do we get the our girlfriends who are 2,000 feet below in the shade because the sun is already set down on them and the sun is setting on us right now? How do we get them up here to help us? Or should I fly down? Or what should I do? And I ended up packing up both of our gliders and walking two 40-pound glider bags down simultaneously while Chris used his one good arm and his two broken ankles to butt-scoot his way down this steep mountainside, right? I was helpless in the beginning because the top 300 feet of this particular mountain is extremely steep. It's rocky, it's unstable, it's slick. And so I couldn't help him. Not even with my trekking poles and my best intentions. I couldn't, I was helpless. And so I was left carrying these bags down while he butt scooted, okay? Which is a helpless feeling. I wanted to just get him out of there. But I knew that if we called 911, that kind of stuff, it's not always the fastest option. We were really, really deep. We were far, far, far out. We were in a really good place for stargazing, meaning there's no civilization right near and the civilizations that are near are very, very small. A populate, the closest town has a population of 250 people. So not a great place to be stranded, not a great place to be hurt. But we knew pretty quickly that it was our job to get him out of there. So we called the girls. Chris butt scooted down the 300 feet where the girls met us. And I gave them the bags. And then I realized that pretty much the only way of getting him out of here was to put him on my back. And that's exactly what I did. I put Chris on my back and I used my trekking poles and I slowly started walking down this unstable mountain with 165 pounds on my back. He crashed right at sunset, which wasn't a great time to crash. And it was also a new moon. So not a great time to be trying to walk down the mountain in the dark, but a great time to be stargazing. So, as we, as I carried Chris down the mountain, I continued to make jokes and to be grateful that he was alive and to be honestly feeling the power of my own body that I could literally take my friend and put him on my back and walk down this really steep mountain. And I felt like I was empowered and strengthened by the task at hand that I was serving the highest good and literally now two days later I feel like way less sore than I should let's just say that as I walked down I basically did it 150 feet at a time and I would have to pick him up and go as far as I could and then I'd have to set him down but that wasn't just me it was also him because as hard as it is to carry someone down on your back it's also hard to be carried down on someone's back. He's gripping my, my shoulders and my neck with his one good wrist and his other hurt wrist. And he's squeezing his, his knees against my hips as tight as he can, trying to stay on. But it's hard. And so we both can only go so long on each go. But every time we stop, we sit down and I turn that headlamp off and instantly we're just blasted open 
and blasted apart by the beauty of nature that's around us, the incredible view of the Milky Way and the brilliance of the stars above us. Just every time we stop, it's like a reset. It's like a recharge and it's an appreciation for our aliveness and our connectedness to the natural world that we are so symbiotically connected to. There's no difference between me and the stars. I am the stars and the stars are me. So, after about three and a half hours of carrying Chris on my back, making jokes, telling him to keep his boner out of my back, all kinds of silly shit, we arrived to the road. And I just let out a, just a celebratory scream as loud as I've ever screamed a feeling that I had accomplished something good and challenging and we had faced adversity and together we had accomplished the rescue that had to happen. And we had not only done it safely and relatively quickly, we had done it in praise and in bliss and in enjoyment, in appreciation for who we are, what we are, where we are, our connection to one another and to our surroundings. Not to mention a perspective that allowed us to understand the things that went wrong, the risks that we take on a daily basis, the fragility of our lives, all of these things that go swirling and coursing through our experience in those moments. It's like heavy, heavy, heavy shit that without the doses of perspective can leave a person tucking their tail and running from the dangers that are inherent in everyday life. <sighs> but I but I have to tell you this. This is my this is my gift to the world. This is this is my crossroads. This is the center of the bullseye, the tip of the reticle, right? I have lived my life in a way that has allowed me to take advantage of our of humanity's wealth and of humanity's potential lifestyle so much so that I've been able to live in bliss and in flow and in pursuit of my dreams and of very incredible surreal experiences and it has changed my metaphorical and physical perspective in such a way that it has allowed me to see the problems with humanity in the present as well as the historical roads that brought us here and to understand the decisions and the pressures, the feelings, the emotions, the fears, the needs of our ancestry both near and far enough to have gratitude for the fossil fuels that I burn and the food that I eat and the technology that is above my head flying me 
with a 30-something pound aircraft, right? I don't take these things lightly, and the human experience that is tragic on one side and the potential human experience that is so positive and full of love and full of awe and wonder and perspective and gratitude on the other, there is some bridge here through the experience of flow that is us chasing our own passions and embracing our human potential both individually and collectively, owning our individual and collective shadows and impacts, and also looking far enough forward with enough perspective and positivity that we can actually draw what is best and right and good and true towards us and us towards it. This is the pill that I'm trying to swallow. This is my calling. This is who I am as a person. This is my gift to the world. It's not just teaching people to paraglide. It's not just inspiring people with the stuff that they call me crazy for. Walking one inch pieces of webbing, miles in the sky. Not just flying a hundred miles on wind and thermals alone. Not just jumping off huge cliffs and doing two flips and landing backwards on my skis. Those things just catch your attention. Those things catch your attention and I plan to use those and to craft those experiences in my own life, those experiences of flow to get your attention and to show you what is possible in the individual and then get you to listen to me so that I can tell you what is possible collectively. The reality is that we are in the safest, most abundant time that humanity has ever experienced. But my generation of people is mired in the doom and gloom of the climate catastrophe, the terrorists, the Donald Trump dilemma. They're looking for something to fill and to, to plug the hole that empties their soul through the cracks and wounds are of fear, but they don't quite recognize it as such. So as the media and the world around them, their parents, their teachers, the news just keeps giving them reasons to pour out their soul through the crack of fear, they feel empty, they feel directionless, they don't know what the plan is. The stories of humanity are broken. The stories that once were questioned between whether it's going to be fascism or communism or liberalism, democracy, those things are all have broken down. We we did the fascism thing with World War I and World War II. We did the communism thing through the Soviets. And now, essentially, we know democracy and liberalism to be a deeply broken and flawed system. The calls to action that I hear most often are ones of fear. Greta Thunberg is a weaponized 
child. She is the priestess of doom, which is ironic that she is born and raised in the safest, most abundant time that humanity has ever known. Humanity, the reality is that humanity faces various really, really important problems, but to paint any of them as catastrophe and Armageddon closes the conversation. People in a state of fear are uncreative. In a state of fear, you can run really fast, but you don't invent shit. In a state of fear, you are an individual. You are not part of the collective. You are not working towards the good of many. That just, it blocks your ability to do that. It blocks your ability to do that. Our climate catastrophe is shrouded in a bullshit message that it is for the children, that it is for everyone. But the reality is that with such fear-mongering, fuck the children. The tiger is at our back. Run for your fucking lives. That's not the way of enlightenment. If you imagine our current humanity and your current self as a caterpillar, the caterpillar from the view of a biologist, he eats and 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 eats. He has an insatiable hunger. And a caterpillar will destroy huge amounts of foliage, huge amounts of leaves in what seems to be an unsustainable way. The caterpillar doesn't pollinate anything. A few of them are food for the birds, but in the scheme of things, the way the caterpillar operates is unsustainable. It's self-terminating. But the caterpillar doesn't exactly know why it's so hungry. Its whole programming has told it to gather the carbohydrates and the proteins and the amino acids and this and that and this and that. And it doesn't know why, but at some point it's gathered it and it gets the feeling that it needs a nap in a cocoon and will find a specific place on a specific branch and it will envelop itself in a beautiful silken robe that hardens like a coffin around it. And remember, inside of this cocoon, a caterpillar does not merely grow wings to become a butterfly. Inside of a cocoon, a caterpillar turns to goo, to nothing, to a small container of matter once again, only to be reborn as something completely different. The legs of the caterpillar and the legs of the butterfly are unrelated They are unrelated. The thing has gone through a phase change. In the, in the analogy of humanity, humanity is currently the caterpillar. 
chomping and chomping and chomping and chomping and chomping and eating and eating and eating. And most of the time, we don't even know why we eat. It's this insatiable programmed hunger. And from the biologist's point of view, this is unsustainable and self-terminating. This is headed for the brink of disaster and faster every moment. But to think that the caterpillar is going to pollinate is wrong. The caterpillar cannot pollinate. The caterpillar, as he is, humanity as it is, will not make any changes. We need a phase change. We can't rely on the old things that we tried that brought us to where we are. We can't use governments, countries, nationalism, separatism on an individual level. We can't assume that every person is their own little thing separate from the whole. That's the kind of thinking that got us where we are. That's the kind of embodiment that got us where we are. The reality is that to save our species and world, it doesn't take and will not work with a catastrophic call, an Armageddon warning of climate catastrophe and some young, vile-filled girl spouting guilt, calling the mature adults evil pigs who have stolen her future and her childhood. No. It will not change with a call to elect politicians to put them as the new golden calf who will save us all. No, no, no. Government's got us here. They're not going to get us out. That was Caterpillar thinking. Any way forward from here is a must-start-with-a- historical understanding of where we came from and why we started digging the dinosaur bones out of the ground and fueling our cars with it and heating our homes with it. Don't forget that fossil fuels have created the quality of life that has allowed enlightenment on a greater scale than ever, that has allowed Greta Thunberg to live in the literal safest, most abundant time in humanity's history ever, that has led us to have more change in a hundred years than in billions before it. And two, you must be in a centered enough place that you can look far enough forward and high enough that you begin to imagine the absolute human potential and the potential of collective humanity and the greatest possible human experience. What that looks like for you as a person and what that looks like for your family, for your community, for your state, for your country, for the world. An overarching perspective that allows you to be grateful for the broken and flawed and sad and disgruntled thing that you were born as 
and also the moments of flow that are possible within you, the moments of pure love and connectedness and oneness that are possible to have, whether that's through MDMA or paragliding. You have to be able to see the past that brought us here and look high enough to the highest possible, best, truest, most positive outcome of humanity for you to begin to be an agent of this phase change that takes us from the caterpillar of humanity to the butterfly of love and oneness that actually repollinates the universe. This is a huge call to action. This is a way bigger call to action than a fucking vote. Fuck your vote. If you think that voting is going to change the world, man, you're just dead inside. It's You are the world. You want to change the world, you got to change you. I mean, Gandhi said it, you posted it on your Instagram, but you still don't get it. You got to be the change you want to see in the world. You got to be the change you want to see in the world. You got to be it. But if you want to change, it's important to know where you are. And if you want to know where you are, you got to know where you came from. And if you want to go somewhere, you got to know where you're going. My call to action is that you drastically explode your brain into the beautiful wonder of what is actually possible in humanity and in the universe. Doesn't that fucking sound so great? Jason Silva constantly says he has mindgasms. Wants to create a place where ideas can have sex with each other and orgasm into beautiful, new, wondrous things. That's what I hope for you. It's what I hope for me. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode.